The unit that I was with was specifically for direct action, hostage rescue, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, getting intel on high value targets uh, within Iraq, targeting primarily Al-Qaeda and the facilitators of Al-Qaeda. We'd have a target package. We'd go in, snatch them up and bring them back for questioning or take them out however is needed. I explained a little bit why I wanted to talk to you. And I think it's, it's pretty obvious because your CV kind of speaks for itself. It's rare to meet people who are really elite in martial arts. And it's rare to meet people who are really elite in the military. So someone who's both like you is even rarer still. So if you don't mind taking you back to when you started, because you, you enlisted in the US Army in 95. Is that right? Correct. So what, what age were you then? So I joined in 19. So I was, I was I was actually raised overseas until I was 18. I spent a year kind of traveling around the U.S. because I never lived here. So I got to spend about a year traveling around and then uh, decided to join the Army at 19 and was a lightweight vehicle mechanic starting out and stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. That's how I ended up here. And at what, at what stage in your Army career did it become clear that you had maybe what it took to get as far as the Special Forces? I think the day I graduated... <laughs> The day you graduated, as in, what does that mean? Graduated yeah. from one step from the... No, um, th- that's the thing is that there's so many different variables within the Q course that are out of your control. Injury is the big thing. So you could be a complete stud and, and be flying along and then, you know, injury will take you out. That was my biggest fear. I didn't really have anything, any other doubts at that time. But my my confidence did grow after I made the the first part, which was selection. So special forces assessment and selection is the very first part. And that's basically to weed everybody out. So you qualify for the qualification course. So once I finished selection, there was a surge of confidence like, okay, I can do this. But I wasn't confident enough to, you know, I don't want to count my eggs before they've hatched. So I always kind of kept that in reserve, kind of like I got it, but I need to keep my head focused because uh, there's a lot coming up. And, and what do you need to have got to that stage? Because you talk about selection and you, it sounds like you got to that pretty easy. What what attributes do you need at that point? It, honestly, it, it's a mental game. I I remember there was a guy there, Sands, Sands, Mike, Mike Sands, I believe, and he was just a freaking anomaly um the guy was about 115 kilos i mean just ripped but he was running like uh, six minute miles i mean on the ruck it didn't even look like he was carrying anything about two weeks in i see him uh, you know in the uh, little you know, area that they have for people that um that quit and I- i've seen people that were much much better physically quit the course and i also remember one of the guys that i went through forgot his name now this was like 20 years ago but um uh he was little guy maybe about you know five foot seven 150 pounds and he had broken several bones in his in one foot and a couple in the other had some knee issues and i remember seeing in the sand like a step and a drag mark step and a drag mark and he just trucked i mean he wasn't the fastest but he did finish all the way through the mental aspect of it is about 70 percent if not more so you have that will to complete it. It's going to go a lot more than your physical attributes. But, you, but presumably there's a kind of base level of physical athleticism that you need. A- absolutely. Right? Yes. And, but you, but going in, you kind of all know, already knew that you had that. Yes. And then it's the, 
it's the the stuff they throw at you later so who what 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 makes people break then if it's if it's 70 percent mental what is it that's what is it that's making people break it's not one event and that's the hard thing to kind of wrap your your mind around it's one event after another after another after another after another after another and it just it doesn't seem to end and the way they design it is intended like that. So you had these guys that were you know, mentally and physically ready, but once the physical aspect hit them, they crumbled mentally. And you, you could physically see that. You could see that they were defeated before they even started the next event. And just to give you an example, like Team Week, we'd have uh, approximately 65 pounds weight on our back from start to finish, from the beginning of the course to the end after we did our admin. And so your rucksack was on you the whole time and then you had to move to your event which was approximately seven kilometers that you had to navigate to so if you take the wrong wrong direction or someone that's doing your lab supposed to get you there it's going to start wearing on you because you're doing more than you're supposed to they're all timed events they're all being you're always being assessed and so when you start kind of making one mistake if you can't just let it go and move forward that's going to stay with you and it's going to start eating you up the big thing was, uh, you know, seven kilometers there, you have whatever event, it lasts between eight to 10 kilometers, and then another seven kilometers, eight kilometers to the next event. And you'd have on average two events a day, and this was every day. And then because you're on a team, once you start your team, you're going through all the events together. If some of those guys quit, the events and the standards for those events don't change. Even if you have eight guys, which ended up having seven guys at the end, but they don't like throw in somebody else to, to, to make up that lost person. So when you have, uh, for example, the log carry, uh, it was a thousand pounds uh, on average, one of those uh, shorter uh, telephone poles. You had to carry that from point A to point B. If you have 12 people, everyone's distributing that weight evenly. When you have seven people, you're doing the same thing, but each person's carrying drastically more on top of the rucks. And so it, it makes it drastically harder to continue doing these events. That was, to me, one of the, the biggest things that I noticed people getting worn on was they would do fine on one event, but by the third, fourth, fifth event, that's where people really started to kind of like, you could see it and their, you know, their motivation was gone, that their willingness to, to continue started to disappear. And it just, it's just so easy to quit. And it's so tempting because you can have this end at any point in time, just saying, I, I quit. And the problem with it is, is that that one moment in time where you say you quit, when you talk to other people that say that, it's like your biggest regret in their life. And once you quit, um, you're considered an NTR. So um, uh, NTR is a never to return. So you'll never get a chance to come back. So it's, um, it's, 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 as, it's as simple as in one moment, you can think, right, I've had enough. And you say you quit and that's it. There's no, there's no sort of, I didn't mean it. I'm all right now. You just, you say the word and you're out. Is that, it? that's the way it works. That's it. How close did you get? Let's see. Probably about nine times. <laughs> Over how long a period of time is all these events? I like the way you call them events. They sound like jolly days out, but they're presumably pretty horrible. Over how many days is these, this series of events? So you have the, the first week, which is um, basically like your PT test, making sure that, you know, you have your admin work and they do uh, like a, a refresher on um, orienteering, which is land, land navigation. Um, you do your individual test by the second week, which is pretty much like a gut test, gut check, um, trying to 
make it to your events by yourself and to build up for what's called the star course. The star course is a land navigation test that they put you through where everyone has a random set of points that they have to make within a certain time frame. In that one event alone, so we start out with 458 people. That one event actually eliminated like 150-something people. Your confidence builds once you make it through that. And then when you get to team week, it starts all over again, but as a team. So we had an average of two a day during team week. And then the very last one, which is called the long walk at the very end. So there, there's plenty of opportunity that you find to, to realize like, you know, why you're going through it. Is this really for me? My strategy on all this was literally as, as simple as it sounds. I told myself, if I make it through, the, I'm, I'm make it through this and then, and then I'll, I'll quit then. And I literally just kept saying that over and over again, you know, I'll make it through this and then I'll quit. I'll make it through this, then I'll quit. And that got me through the whole thing. <laughs> So when you said to me nine times you'd, you thought about quitting, were you just plucking a number and saying you'd felt close? Or, or were, were there sort of specific points when you thought, I'm actually going to do it now? Or do you think you really weren't that close? Was it? I was going to let my body pretty much dictate if I was or not. As long as my legs were moving and I was going the right direction, my whole intent was if I break down, then that's the end of it. If I make it through, I'll reevaluate from there. And... After I made it through and that mentality kind of, I'll quit after this one, it, it served as more of a motivational thing, kind of like mind game within yourself, make it through this, then you're allowed to quit. It was more of a uh, mental challenge than anything else. Because once I actually did that the first and second time, I realized I can keep this mentality and keep pushing through. And then once I'm, I get done with it and I look back, I'm like, hey, I'm actually good. All right, I don't need to quit and just move over to the next one. Uh, so it's like a technique you've you've taught yourself on the hoof to, to get yourself yeah. through and, and stuck with it. And so exactly. you, you said earlier, so graduation, that's when you get your green beret, is it then? Yes, sir. And this is the thing when I mean, we have the SAS and SBS over here, but the, everyone knows about the green beret, world famous. Obviously, John Rambo is the most, probably the most famous fictional one, but you know, it's it's known all around the world. So what, what was that? What, what age are you at this point? You got your green beret. So selection was actually the first three weeks. And then I was actually, uh, so once you actually make the special forces assessment selection, which is actually a little bit unique than all the other ones, because you can make it through all the events, all the times, everything. And then during team week, it's the only special operations uh, course where you can actually get peered out. So out of that 458 that started, we finished with uh, 153. And out of those, it was actually supposed to be, I think, 188, 189, something like that. But we actually had 31 people that were peered out. So their team basically voted them out. Because okay, so that voted out by your peers, that peered out. Yeah. And, and why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because you're working in, in very um, austere conditions uh, for most part and working with your team in, in a very tight area. Everyone has to be able to trust each other and to, to cover each other without having to, you know, hey, I need you to get this done. You need to be able to trust that person's going to do it. So this gives everybody an, a, a, a very good understanding that your team is everything you have. And you guys have to be able to, to play well with others is how they, they put it. So once you actually get down with selection, you go through the qualification course. It depends on the, the area that you're going to and your specific job duty. So for me, 
was uh, I was an 18 Bravo Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, and my language was Arabic. But you have people that were could have the same weapons for uh, Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, but they took Spanish or Korean or Russian. So their languages also dictate how long the course is as well. Uh, Spanish being much shorter, Arabic, Russian, those uh, Chinese definitely take longer. So I spent another year, it was about 18 months, 19 months. And then after that, after the Q course, and the Q course actually has small unit tactics, which is nine weeks, SEER, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, which is basically like you're en- end up in a POW camp and how to blast through that. Uh, then you have your uh, language course, or excuse me, your MOS course, which is, uh, you know, for me, it was Special Forces Weapons Sergeant. So that was you know, three months. Then you have your language. For me, language was six months. And then you have Robin Sage, which is a cumulative exercise that you do at the very end where you have like a mock team and a mock area doing missions and so forth. Once you do that, then you graduate. <laughs> Does everyone do a language? Yes. And how, how, what level do you have to get to? You have to show, basically, it's called 111 proficiency. So reading, comprehension, and writing. And it's, a, it's just a basic understanding of the knowledge you can pursue to actually go more. Most of the guys don't have time to because there's so many other schools that you do once you get done. And then the remote areas that we went to, we even brought a, an interpreter from Baghdad on some of our missions when we were in Iraq to meet up with another interpreter that was... Uh, in the area because the dialect has been so different that even the person from Baghdad could barely understand. Oh, really? It, it was one of those things where you do need to have it. So you have a basic comprehension, but we do have an interpreter to make sure that, you know, we don't, you know, miss anything and it doesn't get uh, lost in translation. But they give you a functional level so you can use it in the field. Exactly. Another thing he said was what what to do if, you, if you're in a POW camp. What 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 is the... What are the basic basic rules of rules of once you once you're caught? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to survive it? Yeah. So um, I, that was actually Sear is one of the the best and worst course that I've been to. It was one of the hardest, but it was also the one that I actually learned the most, and it was it it really kind of struck a chord because at the very end of it, I think one of the biggest things was we went through days where we were so actually. First, they teach you, you know, how to evade, how to hunt, how to create snares, how to create flotation divides out of your rocks, all these different things to survive out in the wilderness. And then they put you out and you have to make it from point A to point B to meet with your auxiliary. They're going to take you to another point. So when you're on the run, you're trying to stay on the run as long as you can. Now, what's unique about the, the Q course is that they had a state federal, or excuse me, a state prison that was uh, about 50, 60 miles away. And they did joint exercises, meaning they had the state prison guards where their scenario was they had a group of uh, escaped convicts and they were trying to track us down. So they got an exercise out of that really good training from it. And our mission was we're behind enemy lines. We have to make it past this point to be able to to be able to survive. And so they had helicopters, they had dog teams, they had you know search parties. And this way you actually can... Uh, utilize everything that you were taught you know, the week prior. But at the end, everybody gets caught. That's the whole point of it. But you're trying to stay out there as long as you can. Now, once you get to the, the POW camp, they do everything from sleep deprivation. You've been on the run for five days anyway, so you're pretty much, you know, haven't eaten. And when I went through was in February, it was just stupid cold. 
uh, it, it was ice everywhere and they just give you scrubs and the boots that you have without the laces or the insoles. So from the time you're there, you're always cold. You're always miserable. They're always keeping you up. They always have like playing on the microphone, babies crying, you know, a little girl screaming, you know, oh, daddy, I want you home. Signs everywhere, work to live, live to work. <laughs> so they really play it off really well. It's a, it's a really good program. And you really get immersed into this whole thing, especially when you haven't slept in, you know, four or five days or, you know, or the sleep that you have is in a concrete box that's, you know, three feet by three feet. So it's enough to where you, you can bend over and stretch your legs, but you can never stand up and the, the floor is freezing. So you never really get to sleep. And in the middle of the time of that, they're, they're pulling you out. They're interrogating you, having you do rake sand, you know, <laughs> just, you know, things that uh, just keep you monotonous, constantly working. And at the end of this, this was uh, probably the, the hardest part was we had three Vietnam era prisoners of war and hearing what they had to say it really because literally we just went through just days of what they went through and they're talking about years and the real thing made you really feel tiny you know just and the the amount of um fortitude mental fortitude that they had to to endure years of 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 this was just uh, it was just incredible so um, they do so they do that at the end so you've gone through your days of kind of mock torture and stuff and and then you 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 go and talk to these real guys you may have spent I don't know years there some of them and some uh, I think one guy that the shortest time we talked to was about about um he was there 15 months another guy was there for I think the the longest I think was 46 47 months Jesus and then hearing their stories and and it just gives you the whole sense of pride and and understanding of the the sheer will that you know people can have to you know survive it was just incredible to hear their stories and you have a whole new appreciation, you know, for, you know, not just other veterans, but you can kind of imagine, you know, it gives you not even a, I wouldn't even say a taste, but it gives you an understanding. That's pretty much about it. But it's one that actually stays with you to where you can certainly appreciate what they've gone through. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Had, had you been out to Iraq as part of the regular army and special forces or any special forces? No, my first deployment was with SF. When I first got in, '95, they, they were really drawing down in in Bosnia and Sarajevo. Somalia had been a few years prior, so you had a few people that were there during that time frame. But there really wasn't anything going on. And then after 9/11, uh, so I actually got out. I was in the uh, the reserves while I was going to school. But after 9/11, I worked my way back so I could actually get in the fight. And what was it like when you finally got out there? When I got back from deployment or got done with the military. When you got your Green Beret and then you, you went out to Iraq. It, it was overwhelming. <laughs> Honestly, it was at first. So I graduated. I went back home, took care of some, some things that I had to do. I went back, signed into group, signed into battalion. On the third day, I was on a flight. I met my team downrange. And one of the hardest things to deal with was, you know, the, the day that I got in, I literally didn't even have a weapon assigned to me. And they just said, hey, grab that, that you know, the weapon, you know, the kit and the cubby. It was from one of the guys that got shot. There was still blood on it. And it was so, you know, and, and I was rolling out. So I know the names of the guys. I was still trying to get 
familiarized with you know my surroundings and and the people that I was working with and went out that night. I mean, I was uh, I was pretty much support. I was just driving or I was gunning the first couple of weeks. Actually, the first week after that, I was already starting to do uh, operations. So you said overwhelming. You just kind of dropped straight into it, and you got you you were seeing death and bloodshed before you'd even got outside, sort of thing. And so, I mean, it's hard to for the rest of us who you know probably swanning around, maybe going to university freshers' week or something like this. It's hard to it's hard to imagine being out because you're still young, right? At this point, you were early twenties by this stage, were you? So at this point, by the time I got to Iraq, I was 30. Oh, you're 30, but it's okay. But still, seeing things as a kid, but seeing things as a 30-year-old doesn't make it any easier, I guess. No, it, it was just, like I said, you know, going from, you know, zero to 100 within 24 hours, you know, of landing in country, that, that was the overwhelming part. And I think it was by the, so the first first two, there were a couple of pot shots here and there. I think by the third mission we already started kind of getting into little firefights the fourth one it was one of my earlier ones and it's just one of the stories that kind of sticks out in my head all the time i just remember you know going into about when you're on the target road we kind of announced at target road we're about you know a block away usually one minute out and we're already hearing pings on the vehicle you know where you know people are taking these pot shots by the time we get in by the time we get there, it's becoming more lively. We stepped out of the vehicle within like two, three steps. I remember taking, it was my left foot. And I just remember seeing like a spark where a round had hit. And then right over my head, there was like a crack of a whip. So it just went like one hit the ground and then looked over and then one hit cracked over my head. And I, and I kind of froze. And it was, it was a very odd feeling because I had been trying to do so much. And I wasn't sure, like, what part of my training do I apply right here? Do I do I follow the stack that's going in? Do I go provide support? Do I take these guys out? And so I was like, well, what do I do? And then um, one of the guys that ended up being my my senior weapons sergeant, kind of that guided me through, Walker, he comes in back and starts running forward and shooting at where we're, we're taking fire at. And he starts yelling, I'm going to come at you like a spider monkey, boy. And keeps cracking jokes and then buddy Todd comes in and goes shake and bake motherfuckers and just start shooting away I'm like we're in the middle of a goddamn firefight and here these guys are fucking cracking jokes and for some reason just that kind of like put me back in a, a situation in my mind where if it's going to happen if I'm going to get hit I'm not going to know and if these guys are so comfortable you know just cracking jokes in the middle of a mission you know wh why, why am I being held back for some reason it just it dawned on me and everything that was like, you know, out of focus and shady and just kind of like zoomed in all of a sudden, I knew exactly what to do, where to go, what to, you know, how to handle it. Now, jump in that sack, just help them out. It, it was, and, and that actually stayed with me every deployment after that. So it was a, it was a huge development for me to learn in combat, the, the mental aspect of it. it. It stayed with me for, for every mission, every deployment after that. So do you mean when you say that you're talking about that mental aspect of of it being a coping mechanism of taking it lightly and joking around a little bit? Knowing that you have something to do, you're there for a reason. And the other reasons that are uh, the other um, variables or the other actions that are happening around you, everything else that's going around you is irrelevant. You need to get from point A to point B. What's happening between that 
fuck it, go through it and, and make it. And having those guys that, that had so much experience, you know, previous deployments and, you know, hundreds of missions already under the belt, you know, they were going through it like it was a job, you know, and that's, and when you have, uh, you know, guys at the shop and, you know, a mechanic or whatever, people cracking jokes, same thing. So it brought it back to a reality for me, because I guess the, you know, the, the whole time I'm thinking, you know, that these are Titans, you know, supermen that, you know, are doing these battles and I was there with them. And then, you know, kind of my confidence grew, but my mental, it, the clarity is one thing that is probably the hardest thing to articulate that happened. It was just for some reason, everything just focused in. It was, it was a very unique experience. And you, are you, so you're kind of getting sent out to do things that require a more, it's, it's kind of surgical missions compared to what the regular army is doing. Because in terms of a percentage of it's a ti- it's a tiny number of you in special forces compared to the regulars right very so we weren't the the unit i was with was um it wasn't a traditional uh special forces unit or team so even in special forces we have certain teams designated certain missions we have everything from halo teams dive teams scuba maritime ops mountain teams and the team that I was with, or the, the unit that I was with, was specifically for direct action, hostage rescue, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. So the, the whole cool thing, you know, you know, the horses and riding a horseback, never got to do that. I never got to go to Afghanistan. What we did was specific getting intel on uh, high value targets uh, within Iraq, targeting primarily Al-Qaeda and the facilitators of Al-Qaeda. And we'd have a target package. We'd go in, you know, snatch them up and bring them back, you know, for, for questioning or take them out um, however is needed. So mine was strictly kicking in doors, going after guys, coming back out, in and out very fast. We weren't designed to stay out there long. We'd have an average between 25 to 30 people, five trucks, uh, heavily armed because we knew we were going to be getting into a fight. But we weren't designed to stay in a sustained, long, you know, six, seven hour firefight. We're just not designed for that. Go in, do a fast hit, hard hit, get what we need, and then exfil. What's the most surprising thing you've ever found the other side of a door when you've kicked it in? I think probably the one of the hardest things to accept was one of the missions that we were on. We had tracked him down to the second floor, and he was using... Uh, his family as a shield hiding behind them. So we had uh, a woman and then three kids on the bed and he was hiding behind them. And we had working dogs with us. So there were Belgian Malawas, ours Gizmo. I think that was also one of the most amazing things too, is realizing how smart those dogs were. Because what were the instant fear that I had was that dog being released and then going after the first ones nearby, which would have been the women and children and I was scared to death about that because they were in fear. But that dog literally just leaped right over the bed and right to the guy that was holding the weapon. But it was one of those things where you're, it, it was heart dropping because it, it was going to, it just seemed like it was going to be like a really bad scenario. But luckily it actually turned out to be great. And come find out that that person actually was just acting to be, they basically had 
one of the actions that they do a lot was they'd go in, they'd actually take over the house and say, either they would kick out the person if they're lucky, or they'd just kill them, say, I'm your husband, you know, what comes ass, I'm the father, blah, blah, blah. So they could systematically place themselves in different positions within the community without people really realizing it. So come to find out this was one of those situations. So it was actually a double surprise. So it kind of worked out in our favor. How long do you spend with the dogs? So they train, and they're trained to not, can't really tell bad guys, but they go for the guy with a weapon, do they? I'm not a dog handler, but what I'd seen is, I mean, they're wicked smart and they do go off of that. But I, I think when, when they're explaining is that when you have like uh, accelerated heart rate, you know, there's hormones that get released in your body and the dogs can smell it. And I think that was the reason why I went after that person instead. Don't quote me on this. This is, you know, like I said, from, from hearing in, in past conversations, you know, 15 years ago, but they, they do know exactly who to go after. So it, it, that was the only thing that I kind of, I need to actually do some research on that because that was something that, that was really unexpected. That's amazing. I've seen some videos of those dogs. What do you call them? Belgian Malamars, are they? Incredible. Incredible what they can do. Because they're not the they're not the biggest, are they? But they're but they have a and they're they're wicked smart and they they live for it. They love that you can't wait to like release them in the house. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So you, you you joined up for the army at nineteen and then special forces in Iraq at thirty. But did you your martial arts it must have started when you were a kid before the army or actually started while I was in the army. It was the first time I could actually spend some time to to go and research and, and test out different types. So for probably a solid year, year and a half, I would go to, I tried out everything from Wing Chun to Kuksul One, Taekwondo, Karate, Ocean, was it Ocean Rio, Karate. And the thing that, that happened was I'd start, I'd give it a chance. I'd try three, four months and then anytime we were doing sparring, at the time I was also about 145 pounds, so I was really skinny. And someone that would outweigh me, just sheer athleticism and power would beat me hands down. So I went from one to another to another until I actually found a place that was doing um, Brazilian ground fighting. And there was a guy that was there that was smaller than me, a little bit shorter. And I was thinking to myself, finally someone smaller than me i can i can finally beat up on somebody you know and, and i meant that as a sense where i'm, I'm not going to be the tool you know that I, I always constantly was so i started in his guard and and he caught me in an arm bar I said, all right all right i got this and tried again got me again got me again. i was like how did so i had to ask him i'm like listen how, how did you do that and he's like well i don't really know i've only been here two weeks so he tapped me out like four times in in one round and smaller than me, and only been there for two weeks. That's it. So that was my moment where I just, this is going to be it for me. So I started in, in at Fort Hood at a rinketing place, not very legitimate, but that got me started. And then I started trying to, you know, expand. So while I was in, uh, on active duty, I continued going. I got off active duty. I was going to school, not only continue training, but I decided to leave the school I was at and transfer from Southwest Texas State University, University of Texas at Arlington, which is about six hours north, just so I could train with Carlos Machado. So I literally moved my whole life so I could actually train. And I stayed with him and continued training until I left back to North Carolina for uh, Special Forces in 2004. And 2004 is when you got your black belt, right? Yes. First, So first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt in the Special Forces, is that right? Yep. This question has come up a lot. 
since talking to military guys, I think people, I think people kind of assume that they all know they all do a lot of martial arts already. But it sounds like you you in, you were teaching them Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? Is that how? Because you ended up teaching a lot of different things in special forces, but a lot of it was martial arts based. Is that right? Yes. So prior to you being there and being an, an elite jiu-jitsu practitioner, what was, the, what was the martial arts training? Was it kind of rifle butts and bayonets and the sort of last ditch? It was I've called not put it well, but, you know. No, 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 no. You put it perfectly well. And it had to do with, it was a little bit archaic, a lot of like grab the groin, twist, pull, you know, stomp on the toes type. It was just very dated and no one really took it seriously. This was around the same time frame, the very early days that the MACP program came out, which is Modern Army Combatives Program. And I believe that there could have been a great program. The problem with it was is that they watered it so down to make it fit within the program of the Army is it just got diluted so much that within a few years, it just went away. And let me rephrase that. It didn't go away. It's still being taught. But the the legitimacy of it was kind of lost. Basically, they were teaching arm bars in three moves. Grab the arm, put your leg around, extend your hip. And I think the, the worst part of it was, is the way they actually had the level certification. The way it was pitched was, yeah, you know, by the time you're MACP level four, you're like a blue belt, which is completely untrue. But it was pitched that way. So they would have, for example, combatives level one. I believe it was like one week or two weeks, something like that. And once you actually get your level one, that qualified you to do level two. Once you did level two, you're qualified to teach level one. So it's literally, it's not even a white belt. It's, it's somebody who had two weeks of training that's now training you. So by the third and fourth, they're teaching you more how to organize tournaments and, you know, how to, you know, hold these programs within your unit and to schedule time with the gym. So the, the aspect of, of training and repetition and uh, staying consistent was lost. There wasn't any emphasis that this is a very perishable skill, that you have to stay on it, has to be done on a regular basis, and people weren't treating it. So, so it, it kind of got lost, the, the efficiency of it. it. It then developed into what I designed was specifically for my unit. I came up with a program called SOC-UC, Special Operations Close Quarters Combatives. But it didn't really incorporate all jujitsu. It was literally about 20% jujitsu, about 40% Muay Thai, and then manipulation of the weapon system and sling with your kit on and how to maneuver off the ground so you can get back on your feet with kit on in a situation like that. So that one, one thing that was kind of surprising to a lot of people seeing that I didn't put that much jujitsu in it because in a, in a combat situation, that should be your absolute last resort. You're always trying to get back to your weapon system, your primary or secondary, your knife. And then the very last resort is, is bare hands. So what I taught was mainly, you know, weapon retention, how to get your weapon back or not get it taken, how to take shots from like a guard position and to be able to stand back up. Maneuvering on top, for example, having to pin somebody down while you could draw your weapon just in case someone's coming at you. So it was more scenarios like that than kind of sport related. That was just for, for my unit, though. That was toward around the same time that I was leaving. So I never got to really expand on it. So I guess it's two things. So it's as a martial art, I guess it's if, if you've been grabbed with jiu-jitsu, it's grappling base framework that doesn't know. But 
once you've been grabbed, something's already gone very wrong. So there's yes. that. There's that. So it's it's weapon retention. But I guess there's the other aspect, which is it's good for you to do generally because all round fitness, as you say, being able to get up from the floor. So I guess were you when you were out with your unit, were you tra- training them in what would look like a normal jujitsu class to us, and then also if if they wanted, but also adapting aspects for for the combatants, yeah. is that? So I was trying to get people involved in it's, it was very much kind of like the nineties mentality of, you know, trying to convince people, you know, what jujitsu is and how efficient it was. So like, you're going to be rolling around with other guys on the ground. It, it just, it doesn't sound appealing. It doesn't sound, you know, they'd rather learn how to punch and kick, but once, you know, I, I got a couple of people hooked on it while I was in, and then that kind of started spreading around, you know, and like, oh, you should try it out. And then once it came from a couple of people, you know, one more person joined in. But it, it it's a great it's a great way to learn a new skill set to to stay in shape and, and give you that that mental mindset of of trying to figure out different situations and what to do and different scenarios. And let's say worst case scenario, it, it gives you uh, the ability to be able to figure out what you need to do to at least get back up on your feet. Right. So worst case scenario, you know, how do you go from guard, push off the hips, do a technical stand up, you know, and then you're back on your feet, ready to go. You can draw. But there's there's always benefit to it. And that's what I was you know, trying to pitch. But a lot of people, you know, too wrapped up in Hollywood. They want the you know one, two, you're done. Or one of the big things that was happening around then was the whole. Uh, what was that one? Is people were like pitching and, and, and trying to sell Krav Maga like. You know, I'll teach you how to do this once and you'll never forget it. It'd be instinct. The, the most utter bullshit was just coming out of the war book. But if you're a good salesman, you can pitch it and people will buy on it. Right. And then they would say, oh, well, you're not doing it right if it fails. You know, for anyone that's been in martial arts, you know, longer than a year understands, you know, that something to become natural takes thousands of repetitions, you know, in the same situation repeatedly to understand all the variables that are actually included. I mean, if we punch straight, you know, and then all of a sudden your target raises and you still punch straight, you're never going to hit your target, right? So you have to be able to adapt to different situations, different weight, different environments. And that's one thing that I, I really wanted to emphasize with my guys in the room. I'd throw in, you know, some furniture, you know, that was, we actually had like padded furniture that we used at shoot houses that I, I really thought was really good for that because, even for jujitsu guys, you know, you throw in a couch and a coffee table in an enclosed room where you don't have all the, the room to, to go. What are you going to do then? I always find that strange in jujitsu when you're, you're rolling and people come up against the wall and they're like, oh, hold on, we'll reset. And I think, well, yeah, fair enough if you want to make it like a competition. But the world has walls and stuff in it, doesn't it? So you shouldn't yep. automatically want a sort of endless expanse to roll around in. I think people do forget that jiu-jitsu is a martial art sometimes. And and creating those scenarios. So it's kind of like the whole elevator fight scene. You know, try and use your jiu-jitsu in the elevator. See how that works out. And it's not just to disprove anything. It's literally just to, you know, get yourself, your mindset ready for that type of environment. Um, and if you've been down enough, enough missions, there's some houses that are literally spotless. They, they're, you know, kind of affluent area or they're, you can literally navigate through room after room without, you know, having to worry about anything. You have some places that are complete. I mean, there's trash on the floor. You're slipping and sliding everywhere. They got leaks over there. It's slippery, you know, so all these things, uh, you know, have to be taken into account when you're doing a mission. You know, the walls in the area, when I'm teaching like guys that are doing sport, 
yes, I tell them to stop, you know, get away from the wall. But, you know, the guys that I'm teaching, especially like law enforcement, use the wall, walk up and, you know, use it to push yourself off and getting them ready for that, that same scenario. And I always, you know, have them, you know, put their like a fake gun on their side to make sure like when you're standing up, you're not exposing that, you know, your weapon, your primary weapon for it to get taken. When you're trying to fight somebody, you want to make sure that that hips on the ground away from them so they can't grab it easily. And little things like that, that are going to be very applicable to law enforcement, not so much to sport. So my my main class is sport, self-defense, not much combat and law enforcement related. I, I separate things from that. I want to ask you, I asked you about this when we spoke before, but I'd like to ask you again, if you don't mind, to share it with a wider audience. And it's the thing that marries up these two sides, the, the military and the, the martial arts. So you started a charity called the We Defy Foundation, and it all stemmed from a guy walking into coming into your into your gym is that right yes so i think and i think if i remember it correctly he just he came in this is an injured veteran and he came in asking for into your martial arts gym in texas asking for help not for himself but for his daughter is that right yes what was his demeanor like when he came to you so i've been kind of accustomed dealing with you know amputees just you see it a lot so when he came in the first thing he was doing was was trying to vet me. I guess what I found out later is that he'd been online. He saw because the name that I started out with was Tier One Training Facility, and he was just like, "Oh, this guy's Tier One. Thinks he's dumb, badass. You know, I'm gonna go check this out. See where he's at." So literally, the first 20 minutes was just him firing back and forth, like, "Oh yeah, so you know, call the place Tier One. You know, why is that?" I'm like, "Oh, I used to be in Third Special Forces Group at Bragg." And so once he kind of got past that, he was like, "Well, I was at Bragg too." I was like, "Really?" You know, so he was with 18 Corps. He was uh, with 82nd. Uh, he was an MP. Lost both his legs and his right arm uh, on in an IED. And he was strictly trying to find uh, a place that he felt comfortable taking his daughter. At the end of the conversation, you know, I just kind of threw it out there you ever try you know any martial arts yourself he's like yeah well before the the before the id he was six foot two so he was actually a tall guy he actually did stand up but never did jujitsu he tried jujitsu when he was in north carolina after to see if that was something he could do and he literally had he described the worst experience you know the guys were more than willing to take my money but you know when you know for example we're covering like full mount they didn't want to spend any time kind of assisting me on that. It was just kind of like figure it out. So uh, it was really frustrating to hear that. And I told him, you know what, if you're, if you're patient with me, I'll be patient with you. It's the first time I'm doing this, but I'm willing to give it a shot. If you know, if you can be patient with me, because I've never done this. So literally that, that weekend I went home, I wrote down about, about eight pages, a little book like this, you know, so front and back, different techniques that he could try something that, you know, work on his angle. But I, I needed to find out like where his base was because the, when, when you're an amputee, they take the muscle flap and they put it over the titanium rod. That's a femur. So he could roll over it. He just couldn't stay on it very long because that would put pressure and start hurting his leg. How far can that reach? His left arm was damaged, so he can't rotate it all away, but he did have a grip on that. So all these different things, and then I had to scrap about six pages of it. And I started with just two pages and we just kept going from there. And I told him, you know, we, we did one hour. It was just privates one-on-one. And, you know, I'd say, Hey, I'll see you Thursday. He's, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Come in Thursday. And then we start working on some more to kind of see where's more limitations are. What can we expand on? 
And I kept kind of like, okay, we'll see you Tuesday, right? See you on Tuesday. I will send you a reminder. He'd say, okay. So he was a little bit hesitant at first. And then once he started kind of understanding that, you know, be honest with you, I was, I was excited about it too, because this was after 18, 19 years doing jujitsu, this was it's still jujitsu related, but it was completely different. You know, the, the leverage was different. The center base was different. The, how can you, you know, manipulate this to do it with one arm? Uh, how can you use the advantage of his other arm? How can we, you know, strategy tactics? It, it was, it was so overwhelming, but such a challenge. I, I was so into it. Yeah, I still am you know, because it's something entirely different that got me really excited to kind of like, you know, you know, kindled up those, you know, the, the initial fire, you know, and as, and feeding off of him because he was excited to come back. He's like, Hey, I tried this today. You know, it was, it took a, a few months for him to get comfortable doing the group class. But once he got into the group class, he just didn't want to leave. So it, it worked out really well. He lost weight. You know, he had goals. He's wanted to start competing. You know, he started lifting weights. He dropped like 36 pounds. His entire, you know, the way he lived life changed. And to this day, I still remember, you know, the, the conversation we had in the corner of the mask going, man, if this worked out so well for you, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it worked out really well for me because I had like homework at home and I was looking forward to this the next day and trying to figure this out. Imagine how many other people could benefit from that. And so that's how we actually started it all. And it was a rough couple of years because neither one of us started a nonprofit. We really didn't know what to do and, and how to go about raising money. And we were really nervous about, you know, how the money was spent and getting audited. And, and this was on the same time frame where, where Wounded Warrior Project caught a lot of heat because I believe it was something like you know, 80% was going to the employees and only like 20% was going to the veterans. And, and to this day, we have uh, um, no more than 80, or excuse me, no more than 20% is going back to the foundation, but, but we do have expenses. So and we have to get t-shirts printed up. We have to pay photographers and, you know, different things like that. But everybody is volunteer. You know, everyone that's on the board is volunteer. Everyone that's an ambassador is volunteer. So uh, we get to put more soldiers to the program. Just found out last week we put over, we just hit the 500 mark. So we've been able to put 500 veterans to the program. We have over, I think, 600 affiliates. And it's growing drastically. And the international support, you know, once Sam Sheriff took on and started developing Reorg as a mirror image of Weedify, I mean, he has done such a spectacular growth with this. I mean, we had to take notes from him. I mean, it was just doing so well. And then he was, you know, be able to influence, you know, the veterans grappling in Australia. And they took, you know, the Reorg model, which was, you know, phenomenal. It worked out. And you know, I'm, I'm starting to work with Canada now. So it, it's something where everyone's seeing the benefits, everyone's seeing the psychological benefits, the physical benefits, and I, I hope it just continues to grow. Well, it's it's a massive in, um, inspiration to us over here because, you know, see, seeing what you guys have done and, and the response that we get to Reorg over here is incredible. You know, you, when you do, I did jiu-jitsu, I'm in late 40s, and um, I, I have my own, my own injuries that, could well have stopped me doing all sport. And so people that know me say, oh, how come you can do jujitsu? And I, I just send them a video of Mark Ormrod, a triple amputee over here who trains jujitsu every day and say, well, you know, what's your excuse? Because everyone's got something, haven't they? A bad knee or something. And, and you know, and then when they find out what the, what Real does and what We Defy does, you, you know, 
often sponsoring people sometimes in a who found themselves in a pretty bad situation and giving them something that gets them training again and can just be that spark to really change their life so no we we're very grateful to to what you're doing because it's a it's a great inspiration oh thank you honestly i i don't think we would be able to reach the level we have without reorg together honestly not because believe it or not we've actually had some people that we started talking about it and they're like oh like reorg we're like exactly <laughs> like, absolutely right you know one of the biggest fans of reorg is actually down in austin Wes Whitlock, who owns Rogue American Apparel, he was a Marine, a U.S. Marine. And I didn't know Wes, but he knew Rework. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And that's where that came up. And he's like, yeah. And we had uh, a group of the ambassadors come in. You know, wanted to host them down in Austin. Everyone had a great time. But he, he was he's a big time supporter. He created some of the shirts, rash guards. But that's how big y'all have grown, you know. And to be able to say, yeah, we're not directly related we're indirectly related in a big way but we have the same mission and you know so y'all's work work is working over the ocean and it's phenomenal so just keep doing what y'all doing and it's going to blow up even more amazing well thanks so much and alan thanks so much for your time thank you sir and for your patience and we'll we'll keep doing what we can over here and you keep doing what you can over there and we'll stay in touch absolutely all the best thanks very much all right brother thank you sir 